JR and the worship team, and, uh, and uh, it is wonderful to come together and just to look at God's Word. There is truth and life in this Word, and so we come before and ask that God would speak to us. You know what a helicopter parent is? You, you familiar with that, uh, that term, a helicopter parent? Here is an official definition of a helicopter parent. A parent who takes an overprotective or excessive interest in the life of, a, of their ch- child or children. Helicopter parents are always there just kind of hovering around, wanting to make sure that there's, if there's ever a problem, then they're going to descend right away and make sure that they can uh, solve that issue for their child. It's, uh, it's a desire to kind of control everything and we see it all over the place. You see it in school. Uh, my son plays a lot of sports. I see it all the time with uh, parents uh, who want to step in and kind of make sure that their son or their daughter can, can do well in sports. You see it uh, with kids and their friends. And you even see it in the Bible. In fact, this morning we're going to look at a story about two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, and their helicopter mom. And she is there to request to Jesus that her two sons have places of honor in Jesus' kingdom. Now keep in mind that we're going to read the scripture here in a moment, but keep in mind that this is in Matthew chapter 20. In other words, it's almost all the way to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so it kind of catches me by surprise. Haven't they figured it out yet? But here is James and John. Uh, here is James and John's mom coming before Jesus. Matthew chapter 20, verse 21. She says, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So in other words, the places of the seats of honor in Jesus' kingdom, uh, James and John's moms uh, wants them to be right there, right on the right-hand side and the left-hand side, so that they have these uh, positions of power and prestige. Okay, so this morning I've got my throne. And uh, this is a very good throne. And... Uh, Now, if you ever go to a country and, uh, who has a monarchy and they have a throne like this, make sure you get the next plane out of there. It's, a, it's not quite a Game of Thrones throne, right? But this serves our purposes. I want us to think about the idea. I want to help us to drive point, home this point that there is a throne. And on this throne sits the king. And the king has all the power and all the influence, his word is law. Whatever he says goes. And so uh, this is the place where, according to James and John's mom, Jesus would sit. Now I realize this morning we're going to be very, we're going to have some criticism of James and John's mom, that somewhere she's a little bit off base. But we can at least say she gets it right that she recognizes Jesus' greatness. 
She recognizes that he is a person that should be shown respect and be given honor. He has the place of power. And so she gets it right now uh, in that regard. Now, what she is requesting is for her son James to be Jesus' right-hand man and for John to sit at his left side. Now, if this is the case, these are positions of power and influence as well. And so the person that sits on this seat has designated authority that, that the king would give this person opportunity to rule and to reign somewhere in the kingdom. And what they say has power as well. There's, this is a position of prestige and honor. It's the king's right-hand man. And the same thing, that uh, the person that sits here, that this person has authority. And so what, Je- what is being asked of Jesus is that, that, uh, that, the, that James and John would be great in his kingdom. That they would have greatness uh, being in these positions of honor. It's kind of like if you worked for a big company like Apple. Who is the CEO of Apple? Tim Cook. And what if you worked for uh, Tim Cook at Apple and your mom goes up to Tim Cook and says, you know what? Uh, My son would be a great VP of worldwide marketing and my daughter would be the perfect uh, VP for uh, software engineering. These high-profile positions You know what Tim Cook would do? Ah, forget you. Blow you off. There's no way that just because you work for Apple, you can't have these positions of of influence and and of of power. And Jesus brushes James and John's mom off in the exact same way. Look at what he says here in verse 22. You don't know what you're asking for. Jesus says to them, said to them, Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Okay, the idea of drinking the cup is a Jewish expression. And what it means is to share someone's fate. And so what uh, Jesus is saying here is. Can you, uh, can you have this, go through the same type of thing that I'm going to go through? It is a fate of suffering. In fact, here in this passage, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 20, and we've read uh, and, and, we're, and we've started here in, in verse 20. And if we were to back up just a few verses, in verses 17 Uh, through 23, Jesus has, for the third time, predicted that he is going to die by crucifixion. Let me just read verse 23. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But, oh, I'm sorry, I need to back up. Verse, what I meant to read here is verses 18 and 19. Jesus told his disciples, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be mocked and to be and flogged and crucified. 
And we know this story very well if we've been in church any length of time. This is speaking of Jesus' trial and his crucifixion. And Jesus is saying, can you share the same faith that I'm going to have? Can you suffer in this same way? And James and John say, probably out of ignorance, yes, Lord, we can. And Jesus says, now verse 23, you will indeed drink from the cup, from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And so Jesus affirms they will suffer. But the authority to sit in this seat or to sit in this seat can only be granted by God the Father. And so this is the story of James and John and their helicopter mom. And so now let's back up and look at and ask a, what I think is an interesting question. Is James and John's mom wrong in asking what she asked for? Should she not want greatness for her children if it is greatness in God's kingdom? It's an interesting question because our first reaction when, we, when I read this passage at least to think, come on, mom, you're, you're all screwed up. Don't be asking those kind of things. But as Jesus continues the conversation, it feels that he backtracks a little bit. He's not going to uh, discourage this idea to be great, uh, of being great in his kingdom. He's actually going to encourage it. He's going to say, yes, you should desire to be great in my kingdom, but understand that greatness in my kingdom is pursued and achieved far differently than greatness in the kingdom of, kingdoms of the world. And so let's look at verses 26 and tw through 28. This is the, the high point of the passage, the point that we want to drive home before we finish today. Verses 26 through 28, speaking of greatness in God's kingdom. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, don't desire greatness. He's saying, desire greatness, but this is how it is achieved. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, I see Jesus here affirming the desire to be great. But he's saying that it'll be achieved differently than how we normally think of greatness. So let's talk about greatness in life. Three points that I want to make here this morning. The first is that the desire to be great is universal. Everyone desires to live a great life. It's not just James and John and their mom who desire greatness. In this passage, we actually see that the other 12 want the exact same thing. In fact, when they've heard of what has happened, what James and John have requested, they get ticked off. Why? Because they want the uh, positions of honor themselves. 
Verse 24, when the ten heard about this, the other ten of the twelve, they were indignant with the, other, with the two brothers. You see, they all wanted positions of power and honor. They all wanted to be considered great in Jesus' kingdom. And they all wanted to have a good life. It is a universal desire. The desires buried in the hearts of each and every one of us is the same as well. Now, we might not be so explicit about it and to ask Jesus, hey, can I sit in positions of honor and authority? But deep down inside of us, all of us desire greatness. In fact, it is seen in the way that we approach our schoolwork, in the way we approach our families, in the way we approach our work or our business. It is even in the way that we approach ministry here at the church. All of us have a desire for greatness, to have the best for our kids, for our family, for our work, whatever it would be, for our church, for our community, for our school. And that universal desire for greatness should not be shut down or discouraged. But it should be redirected towards the kingdom of God. You see, here's the difference. There are, if, if this desire within each of us is buried there and is significant, a desire for greatness, most of the time we uh, have our desire for greatness uh, directed towards worldly things. And now what Jesus is saying is let's encourage this, but let's redirect it towards the kingdom of God. De- God desires for greatness, greatness for all of us. But what we see in this passage is that greatness in God's eyes is completely different than greatness according to the world's ways. You see, Jesus has a way of redefining things. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the Mount, greatest teaching in the history of the world. It is a teaching about what the the kingdom of Jesus is to look like. It's it's really a teaching about how to sit in this chair. What it's going to look like to be great in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, do not even be angry with your brother or sister. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, do not even lust after a woman. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not even resist an evil person. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, this is the way of the, king, of the kingdoms of these worlds, and now this is the way of my kingdom. And it's completely turned on its head. And so he says, if you want greatness, which God wants for us, but understand that greatness will not be achieved with a life of anger, and a life of lust, and a life of revenge. In fact, the way to have a truly good and great life is to live the way of Jesus. Because His way is a way of peace, and of purity, and of forgiveness, and of love, and all of those things. Now that is really a great life. And so, so many people seek to sit in this chair, in the world's kingdom. And it is a way of, it is a way of power and revenge and all of these things. 
and that will not lead to the life that they want. So that brings us to point number two. Greatness in the world is achieved with a heavy hand. The normal way to get greatness in the world is to get power. To have others serve us. To have our needs being, being taken care of. That is what's considered a great life. When everyone is there to uh, wait on us hand and foot. And Jesus says, verse 25... You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, they have a heavy hand. Greatness in this world is achieved with a heavy hand. And that's the normal way for people to sit on this throne or in this chair or in this chair. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And how many people are oriented their, orienting their lives to get their own way and their own desires to be fulfilled? It's the idea of getting control. It's a powerful urge. And we like the idea of having power, having others serve us, having our needs taken care of. In fact, it is such a compelling urge that it, we see it seep in even within the church that people become self-centered and it's here about what I can get. And whether it be in the church or in the world, people climb over each other just to achieve one more uh, rung on the ladder of power and success. And you know what? This is a problem. In fact, this is one of the main problems in our world today. This is why we see when we watch the news, it is one story of grief and shame after another. Because this kind of life is exhausting and it destroys our relationships and we hurt people along the way. And it makes life no fun to sit in this chair when, what it, when the world sits in this chair. It is an exhausting, terrible way to live life and ultimately it kills our soul. And so greatness, according to the world around us, is achieved with a heavy hand. But can you see that this is not really the way to the good life? That living this way is a terrible way to live. It's terrible emotionally, it's terribly, terrible relationally, and it's definitely terrible spiritually. And so how should we pursue greatness? Point number three, greatness in Jesus' kingdom is achieved through serving. Again, the most important verses in this passage, verses 26 through 28. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying... That if you want to sit in this seat, then your posture should be that of a servant. In other words, get used to not putting yourself first, but get used to putting others before yourself. And that's the way Jesus lived. Jesus says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. In a moment, we're going to gather around the Lord's Supper. And this is a reminder of Jesus giving his life as a, ra as a ransom for us. His body was broken, his blood was shed, so that, he so that we could have new life in him. In other words, Jesus came for us. He came for others. And not only the way he lived, but the way, not only in the way that he died, but in the way that he lived. Now, if we go on in this passage, the very next uh, story, and I thought about all kinds of illustrations I could give from Jesus' life, and I just thought, the very next story is a perfect illustration. Jesus is on the road to Jericho, and there are two blind men sitting along the path. Two people that are out there begging for their uh, food so that they can eat. They're blind. They have no way of earning their own living. And they cry out to Jesus, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on us. And what do the crowds say? Shut up. This guy has no time for you. He's busy. Get out of his way. That is literally what the passage says. The crowds say to him, uh, let me find it. The crowds say to him, uh, uh, 31, rebuked them and told them to be quiet. And that's what we say. They told them to shut up. And what does Jesus do? He stops and he looks, them, he looks directly at them and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now Jesus was busy. He was on his way uh, to, Jer to Jericho. He has things to do. And yet Jesus stops touches them on the eyes, and heals him. Jesus' whole life, his healing, his teaching, his prayer, the w everything he did in life was lived for others. In fact, it wasn't just those around him. Did you know that when Jesus prayed, he actually prayed for you and me? The last prayer that uh, Jesus offered the night before he was betrayed is recorded in John 17. I love this. Maybe you've read this before and you, you've, your heart has rejoiced as mine has as, I re, as we read this. Jesus prayed, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who would believe in me through their message. That's me. That's you if you're a Christian. We've believed in Jesus through the message of the disciples. I pray also for those that who, who may believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus is praying that we would be in him just as he is in the Father. And may, we also, and may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That is a wonderful thing. Jesus devoted his life to others, to caring, to healing and teaching, to praying. And should not our lives be dedicated to the same sort of things? You see, we're in the series called Ministry Matters. And the idea here is that we want to be doing the type of things that Jesus did. We want to, as a church, devote ourselves to the same type of things that Jesus did devoted his life to. Ministry to those that could not help themselves. Ministry to children. Ministry to the elderly and to the sick. 
to teaching God's Word, to giving of our time and our resources, to prayer. In fact, as a church, we've uh, said it a million times and we will continue to emphasize it. God is calling us to be a church of fervent prayer. Why? Because this is the kind of ministry that Jesus had. And if he's to bless our church, then we will do the same thing. Ministry matters. It matters so that we grow in our own faith. These two little banners here, uh, kind of wrinkly, hopefully you can see them, uh, but they were designed so that we could think about how we are going to grow in our faith as a church together. Each circle represents something that we will do as a church. Now we recognize, I, I call these discipleship circles. I recognize that so much of our faith, our growth in our faith, happens as we spend time individually in the Word. But these are things that we do together corporately. Praise, preaching, and prayer. That's when we gather here to worship on Sunday morning. It's so important. This is something that Jesus spent so much of his time dedicated to. And if we are to grow in our faith, we dedicate ourselves to the same thing. That's why we give such emphasis that we would come together for praise, that, we would, that our hearts would exalt in what God is, is doing in and around us, that we would open up God's Word in preaching, and that we, would be, that we would listen to it and be formed by it, that we would gather together to pray. That, those things are very, very important. And that has nothing to do with me or the worship team or the quality of anything that we provide. God has ordained the church to do these things and His Spirit works no matter what. Now we want to do the very best we can, but I encourage you to dedicate yourself to this to coming together so that we can be transformed into God's image. The second circle is the orange circle, and that is strong Christian friends. Now, if we are to grow in our faith, we need strong Christian friends. Am I right? It is so hard to persevere in spiritual growth if we don't have people around us that are, that are encouraging us, that are challenging us, that are supporting us, that are, that are convicting us. Strong Christian friends are crucial. And that's why we're giving special emphasis to growth groups and to groups where we can form relationships that it's more than just having a good conversation, but it's going deep with one another. And then lastly, the third, third circle, and this is the circle of this sermon series, to serve the Lord. See, I think we all recognize very quickly that circle number one is important for our spiritual growth, and circle number two is important for our discipleship, but circle number three is important as well. We grow to become like Jesus when we serve in the way that he served. I think a lot of people plateau in their Christian walk and maybe even begin to uh, decline because they don't serve the Lord, and God has called all of us to serve. Now, when all three of these circles come together, that little place right in the middle where uh, all three circles touch, that is the ideal place where we are going to grow in our faith.
Serving helps us grow because we become more like Jesus. Serving helps us grow because we have the joy of being used by God. Serving helps us grow because it directly increases our faith. We have a front row seat to see what God is doing through us. It increases our faith. Serving helps us grow because it draws us into deep togetherness. You will form a greater depth of relationship by serving alongside of someone than you ever could otherwise. And that's because in serving, you see not only people's strengths, but you see their weaknesses. I've been in ministry a long time now, and I've had to offer a lot of apologies to people. And I have to, I've had to say, please forgive me, I messed up. And you know who I've offered those apologies to? People that I've served in the ministry with. You get to know people, they're good, they're bad, and they're ugly. And that's a good thing, because when we go through the difficulties together, there is a depth of relationship. I never have to ask forgiveness to the person I sit down and share coffee with. But I do have to ask forgiveness to the person that I serve with. There is a depth of relationship, a deep togetherness. That's what we gave as a cultural value for our church, a deep togetherness when we serve. And serving requires obedience and re redirects our focus on God. And so this message is entitled, Serve to Grow. When we serve in ministry, and we're going to talk more about this, obviously, in the weeks to come, we want to give some easy on-ramps, but as we continue to just cultivate the soil, we want to understand that, the, that this is a good thing. We serve to grow in our faith. And so let's wrap this up. The first most important thing to say, whoops, good thing this is a plastic thorn. Uh, uh, the first thing we want to say in appl application of today's message Make sure Jesus is sitting on this seat. There's a lot of people that put a lot of other things on the throne of their lives. It might be their family, their kids, their work, their finances, their pleasure and their activities. Make sure Jesus sits on this seat. That's the way to the good life. That's the way to have a great life. And then I want to encourage you to seek to sit on this chair to pursue greatness in God's kingdom, but to recognize that that is not a building yourself up. That's actually a humbling yourself. It is not achieved in the same ways that the world achieves it. The world says, get it yourself. And Jesus says, give it to others and give it to him. Give our lives, live our, our lives in service to others. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then one more verse, 1 Peter 5, 5b through 6. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand so that He may lift you up in due time. So that He
he may say, sit here or sit here. And so it is not that we seek our own good, but we seek the good of one another and understand that greatness in God's kingdom is achieved when we serve as Jesus served. The last verse in this passage that we've looked at today, verse 28, says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That ransom for many is...